Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 31 this morning. Uh, Here Jesus is being led away out, out of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified. And apparently along the way, he loses the physical strength needed to continue carrying the the cross beam that he has been uh, required to carry to uh, Golgotha. And so Roman soldiers conscript a man by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross beam the rest of the way. It looks like, this is a little bit of speculation, but I think there's reason to Uh, believe that this is the case. It looks like Simon of Cyrene became a follower of the Lord Jesus. Um, Mark's account actually mentions Simon's uh, sons, the names of his two sons, which is a strange thing to do unless these individuals were well-known members of uh, the early church. And so it looks like this was God's providential means of bringing Simon and Simon's family, along with his wife and his sons, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what we're going to think about together uh, this morning. Uh, I want us to reflect upon this great multitude of people, particularly the daughters of Jerusalem, who are weeping over Jesus and what Jesus has to say to them. So that's going to be our focus today. But before we read, uh, you know, there are, a, there are a number of uh, shocking, disturbing events that occur on this day that has come to be called Good Friday, uh, that Jesus would be blindfolded by the high priest's officers and beaten and then told to prophesy who struck him, that the innocent Jesus would be hauled around from the high priest's home to Pontius Pilate to Herod, then back to Pontius Pilate, to be, uh, to be mocked by Herod's soldiers, stripped of his clothing and dressed up in, in regal robes and mocked and made fun of, and then to be uh, Beaten, and Luke does not go into detail about this, but we know from the other gospel accounts that after being condemned by Pontius Pilate, he was, of course, scourged. He was flogged before taken out of the city and and was crucified. A, A number of shocking and disturbing things occur on this day, but there's something shocking in this passage. I wonder if you've ever considered it and That's what we're going to try to uh, focus on this morning. So let's pick up our reading in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, uh, uh, one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, 
Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Excuse me. Have you ever, ever noticed how unsentimental Jesus could be? Very out of step with things today. People love sentiment. And sometimes we view Jesus as a sentimental kind of guy. Kind of sweet and sappy and saccharine. But then we hear some of the things Jesus had to say, and we realize just how unsentimental Jesus could be. Just think about some of the things Jesus has said in the Gospel of Luke. Back in Luke chapter 9, you have this man who comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I, I, want, to, I want to follow you, but first, I need to go bury my father. And if it's the case that maybe his father has, has just passed, we, we might expect Jesus to say something like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about what's happened to your father. Go ahead, go and take care of that and I'll wait for you. Or maybe it's the case that this man is saying, my father is in his declining years and I need to stick around and take care of him until he's gone. And then we might expect Jesus to say, family first. You go ahead and tend to your father. But instead, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. A couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is by this crowd and this voice speaks out from the crowd. Blessed be the one who bore you. Just a general Semitic blessing. You bless you, bless the one who bore you. And we might expect Jesus to say, thank you, that's, that's very kind of you. And yes, you know, I, I, I have a wonderful mother. But instead, Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus could be so unsentimental. And perhaps most shocking of all, two more chapters later in uh, Luke chapter 13, Tragedy has struck a community. A tower has collapsed and 18 people have been crushed to death. Tower of Siloam. People are asking questions. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to these people, Jesus? Did did these people commit some kind of uniquely heinous sin in order to do this? Why do these kind, kind of tragedies Occur. Well, Jesus is here. He seems like a good person to ask. So, Jesus, what do you make of this? Why did this happen to these people? We might expect Jesus to say, okay, here's an opportunity to engage in apologetics discussion. Let's, let's talk theodicy. Let's talk about God's goodness and sovereignty and how these things work together. No, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looks at them, turns to them, and says, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Let's just be honest about this. People today would be incensed with some of the things Jesus had to say. I mean, Twitter would just blow up. And many of us 
today might be outraged with Jesus for saying things like this. And Jesus, how could, how could you say something like this? There was this freak accident. People have, people have died. There's a tragedy in the community. And Jesus looks at them and says, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. The really important thing is you need to understand that what has occurred to these individuals, God is communicating something to you. That unless you turn to him, repenting, trusting him for grace, you too will perish and perish eternally. He could be so unsentimental. People today would be furious, I think, with some of the things. People today are furious with some of the things Jesus said. Then we come to this passage in verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And and why, why shouldn't they? No doubt Jesus was a lamentable sight. We, we know that before all of these things took place on this day, that the night prior, Jesus was already near the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane. His sweat was coming out as drops of congealed blood. Such was the, the emotional and psychological pressure upon the incarnate Son of God at the reality of what it would cost him to be the sin-bearer of his people. And then he's betrayed by his own and he's hauled off before uh, the, the Sanhedrin. He's taken by the high priest's officers, blindfolded and beaten, hauled around from court to kangaroo court. And then he receives a Roman scourging. Now, this was typical for anybody who was condemned to death by crucifixion. First, they were flogged. You know, the thing to recognize is, is many people who were condemned to crucifixion actually never even made it to the cross. Many actually died while they were being beaten. Such was the violence and brutality of these floggings. The prophecy of Isaiah predicted that the servant's appearance was marred beyond human semblance. He wouldn't even have been able to recognize Jesus. So surely Jesus was a lamentable sight. Bloody, beaten, bruised, and gory. Led away by these Roman soldiers outside of the city, outside of the camp, to die where criminals were put to death. In fact, Jesus will be crucified between two criminals. And so it seems entirely natural that these women would be moved to tears. How could, how could you not weep? How could you not lament? How could you not feel some sense of pity at the sight of Jesus? Perhaps just at the, the inhumanity of it all. Or maybe these women have become, in some sense, a part of the following of Jesus. And they've, they've come to think to some degree that Jesus might just be the Messiah that we've been waiting for. So of course they would cry as they watched what was happening to, to him and unfolding before their eyes. But what Jesus says in response to their weeping, I think, is truly shocking. He says in verse 28... Do not weep for me. Just stop there. If we're honest, we want to say, I mean, come on, Jesus. 
Can't you, can't you show a little appreciation here? That they're, they're showing a little bit of, of, of pity, a little bit of compassion. At least someone in this whole awful ordeal feels sorry for you. At least, at least they're not spitting on you. At least they're not like the Roman soldiers gambling for your cloak while you hang from the cross. At least they're not like those religious leaders who are going to say, if he is the Christ, let him save himself. At least they're not like that, uh, that one criminal beside Jesus on the cross who mocks him and derides him. Shouldn't you, shouldn't you turn Jesus and, and just speak some word of blessing to these mourners? Maybe, maybe even just a look, a nod of approval. They're, they're weeping for him and you'd think he'd be grateful for their laments, but he stops them short and says, don't cry for me. But then what he says next is even more surprising. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. And cry for your children. Why? Because he foretells in verse 29 when the day of destruction will, will come upon them. He's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that would occur in 70 AD, just a, just a generation after this. The Romans will come through Jerusalem. Destroy the city. Destroy the temple. It, it will bring calamity such as has never been seen before. And it will be the end of Jerusalem politically, uh, socially, ethnically, and religiously. And this is the seventh time Jesus has warned of the impending destruction of Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a major theme of his teaching. Desolation is coming. The fall of Jerusalem, he says, will be so severe that it would be better if you never had a family. Now, that's shocking because, I mean, we, we, we love our family, or at least we love someone in our family. And we know that having a family is a tremendous blessing. But he says, on that day, you will say, Blessed are the barren. Better that you've never had children. Better that you never nursed an infant and brought them into the world to know this kind of suffering and desolation. And he says the destruction on that day will be so severe that they will call on the mountains, fall upon us to the hills, cover us, put, put an end to our misery, blot us out. But you see, what will visit them will fall upon all who reject Christ. You see, these, these temporal judgments which the prophets in the Old Testament say so much about with regard to the nations, and this temporal judgment that is going to fall upon Jerusalem in AD 70 is meant to speak to all of us about the judgment that will fall upon those who reject the Lord's anointed one. So this is not just a warning about the destruction of Jerusalem, though it is first of all that. It is a warning for all who will suffer judgment for having rejected so great a Savior. Friends, do you remember, you remember when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem? Not too long ago, we looked at that passage before before he even entered into the city. He, 
He saw the city from a distance. And what did the Lord Jesus do? He, he wept. And, and the language used is, these are, these are surely not sentimental tears. This is, this is Jesus breaking down, convulsing, weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you, even you, would have known the things that make for peace. He's weeping because he knows what's coming. He's weeping because he knows who he is and he knows that they do not know who he is and he knows that they will reject his claims to who he is. They will reject the very one, the only one who could save them and they will suffer. They will suffer in this life and they will suffer in the life to come. And then Jesus adds this statement in verse 31. If they do these things... To me, while the, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now Jesus is drawing an analogy. Jesus is the, the green wood and the people of Jerusalem are the old dried out wood. He's <clears throat> saying it, 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 he who is perfectly innocent is, is the, the, therefore the last one who ought to be crucified. And yet here he is being led out to be crucified. The green wood is about to be tossed into the flame. So what will happen to the people of Jerusalem who actually deserve to fall under divine judgment? That's Jesus' point. If innocent Jesus faced this, what will be the fate of the guilty? I think there's a spiritual lesson then in that, in that analogy. If this is how the sinless Son of God suffered, then how much worse will it be when God pours out his unmitigated wrath upon sinners. See, if, I, if I am not able to escape divine judgment, Israel, how will you ever escape it? He's saying, look at me, look at what is happening to me, look at what I am suffering, and you think you will not suffer? And that's why Jesus says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. He's, he's so unsentimental. <clears throat> and maybe it even appears insensitive. But friends, that's only because we don't know what love really looks like. It may be unsentimental, but it's certainly not unloving. This is, in fact, an expression of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Notice how he speaks tenderly to them as the daughters of Jerusalem. And he's not, he's not condemning them. He's not rebuking them. He's, he's warning them, don't weep for me. Your tears for me will count for nothing. Isn't it amazing when you think about what Jesus has been through up to this point, not even recognizable physically, covered in blood and wounds, can't even carry the cross beam. And he's He's mindful enough to be thinking about these mourners, to think clearly about their future. And so if we are to cry tears, Jesus would have us cry the right sort of tears. And this is where Jesus' words speak to us. Jesus' 
is not interested in you feeling sorry for him or for what he went through. After all, I think it's right to say that hundreds of people died on Roman crosses. Thousands of people perhaps died on Roman crosses. And many of them suffered physically more than Jesus. Now we know that the most severe suffering that Jesus went through was his suffering in his body and soul, the wrath and curse of God for our sins. But many others who were condemned to crucifixion suffered more than Jesus. You remember that one of the things, what, what did the people marvel at when Jesus was on the cross? They, they marveled that he died so quickly. Oftentimes people would hang on the cross for long hours, sometimes even days. That's why soldiers would come up and break the legs of people on the cross. Because if your legs weren't broken, you could still by, by instinct prop yourself up and take in a gasp of air before you collapsed again. And so it was a mercy to have your legs broken because you would die more quickly from asphyxiation. And you remember they went to break Jesus' legs. Let's get this over with. Let's get this handled before the Sabbath comes. But when the soldier went, Jesus was already dead. Jesus didn't hang on the cross for very long. Others suffered more than he did. And, and there are 10 million tragedies that happen every day on our planet because of technology today. We hear more and more about them than ever before. We maybe think our world is getting worse than it ever was, but it's likely that we're just seeing and hearing more about the bad things that are happening in this fallen world than anyone before us. Not a, not a day goes by where you don't hear about something that moves your heart to pity. Victims of genocide, victims of oppression and injustice, threats of terrorism, polyps on the highway, disasters, loved ones diagnosed with cancer. There's no shortage of tragedies in this fallen world. But you see, just feeling sorry for sufferers doesn't save them, it doesn't save you. And just the same just feeling sorry for Jesus doesn't save you. As some of you have maybe seen the movie, and I am not recommending that you do, but many have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's rendition of the crucifixion. And it's, it's, it's incredibly graphic and Gory, and it was effective in one sense in helping people see the physical horror of the crucifixion. You know, viewers couldn't help but be moved to pity for all that Jesus suffered because of the bloodbath unfolding before their eyes. But you see, those are relatively easy emotions to evoke. In fact, I think we could make our own film about a no-name, somebody no one knows anything about, some innocent man who is condemned for a crime he didn't commit, condemned to death, he's put to death, and I guarantee you the watchers of that film would be moved to the very same emotions. Pity, sorrow. You would have felt sorrow for such suffering. It's not hard for people to feel sorry 
Now, I'm not saying it's bad. Many, many good things can come from it. It might move us to compassion. It might move us to try to alleviate the suffering of individuals. All I'm saying is that it's a very natural human emotion to feel sorry for people who suffer. I mean, there's a whole genre of TV shows that, that plays on this sort of thing, isn't there? You think of shows like, like Ninja Warrior or, I don't know, America's Got Talent. One of those shows where somebody's going to come out and perform or go through a course <clears throat> in a competition. Very often as the person is being introduced, what do they do? They give, they give a little bit of background. They give you a backstory to that person's life. And usually it involves a story of suffering. I lost my dad or been diagnosed with this terminal disease. This has happened, this, this terrible thing has happened to me and my family. Everybody has a sad story, and I'm not making light of that, but, but why do they do that? Because people are drawn to that. We're naturally moved to pity. You have to be a particularly calloused person to not feel some sense of pity when people suffer. And then we love it, don't we, when those same individuals come out and on the stage and perform and everybody goes crazy over the, their performance. So this person goes out on the course and wins. We, we celebrate, we rejoice with them. It tugs at our heartstrings. But, but friends, let's be honest. This is exactly how many people respond to Jesus when they look, and read this story, look at and read this story. In fact, for many people who observe what has come to be called Good Friday, this is exactly how they think the day should look. They should be like these daughters of Jerusalem, this crowd that's following Jesus in mourning. They should feel sad that Jesus died. Therefore, they try to work themselves up into the right somber mood to grieve over his death. And they say, oh, look at how much Jesus has suffered. We need to feel sorry for him. But then we know Easter day arrives and Jesus rises again from the dead. And now we can celebrate. Frankly, it's all very sentimental. But you see, Jesus does not want your sentiments. If he did, he would have said to the women, thank you, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Finally, somebody gets it. But that's not what they need. And therefore, that's not what he wants. You see, the point is not to feel sorry for Jesus. The point is to feel sorry for your sin. That's why Jesus said, don't cry for me. I'm going as it has been appointed. For the joy set before me, I go to the cross. Cry for yourselves. Weep for yourselves. Lament over your sin. Because if you do not have a Savior, then you have every reason to lament over what's coming to you. You see, friends, pity comes to us naturally, but penitence only comes to us supernaturally. Almost everyone feels sorrow for people who, who suffer, especially if someone is suffering unjustly like Jesus. You, you, you don't need the, the saving work of the Holy Spirit to feel sorry for Jesus. But you do need the saving work of the Holy Spirit to feel sorry for your sins and to turn from them and to trust in Christ and to say, you, Jesus, are the Son of God. You are innocent and I'm trusting 
in you because you are my only hope. And so the point of this passage then is if, if we're to weep, let us weep for ourselves because unless we find safety in Jesus, we, are, we too are in danger of coming under the wrath of Almighty God. See, the person to be pitied is not the Savior who, who died for sinners, but sinners who die in their own sins and therefore come under the judgment of God. And so what we should feel sorry about is our own sin. Not, not theoretical sin, not sin in the abstract, but personal, real ugly, despicable sin. And if we, don't, if we don't like to hear about sin, you know, if, if you're thinking, oh, there goes Pastor Jared again using that word sin and it rubs you the wrong way, then I, I, I mean this with, with love, dear friend. You are never, ever, ever going to understand why Jesus is suffering on Calvary. Unless you understand what we're talking about when we talk about sin. If you, if you look at this only feeling sorry for Jesus and not feeling sorry for your sin, then the warning of this passage is that you will have good reason to weep for yourself. There will be no salvation for those who reject God's appointed Savior and so when you look at Jesus' sufferings and then his resurrection a few days later, let's make sure that we're experiencing sorrow and, and joy, but the right kind of sorrow and joy. Not simply for a man who was so good but suffered so much, but as one who suffered for the sins of his people, people like, people like me and you. So come to Jesus, run to Jesus, trust in Jesus, rest in Jesus. That's the invitation of this passage because salvation comes through him and through him alone. As I said at the beginning, this, this day has come to be called by many Christians in the history of the church, Good Friday. Why? Have you ever thought about that, how strange that is? That this day of all days is Good Friday. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is sorrowful unto death. Jesus is taken before courts and interrogated and beaten and mocked and derided and blasphemed and beaten near the point of death, forced to carry a, a, a beam until he reaches the point of physical exhaustion and then is hauled out to the place called the skull where he is crucified alongside of criminals. And we call that day Good Friday. <laughs> Why? Well, because you see, through the suffering of the Son of God, repentant and believing sinners are rescued and delivered eternally from the wrath and judgment of God. That's what makes this day so, so good. So let's trust in the Lord Jesus today and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for...
uh, giving us your word and telling us about the events leading up to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us the grace of true repentance uh, to turn from the things that we know we shouldn't do and to begin to do the things that we know we ought to do. Father, we pray that you would lead each one of us here today to mourn for our sin, but also to rejoice in the Savior of your providing. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.